Swing and a high fly ball, belted. First home run for Acuna as a tape measure shot in Cincinnati. There's a deep drive to center field. Get up, ball. Get out of here. And gone. Home run number one for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. 34 regular season home runs for the now 21-year-old Juan Soto. That is hit in the air to right and way out of here. Hello and welcome into episode 12 of the Prospects 365 Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I am your host, Ray Butler. It has been a month since you last heard us. It's been a month since we have published an episode of this podcast. Most of you know, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about the death of my grandfather. Uh, And first of all, I'm extremely appreciative of those of you who reached out to me, those of you who kind of read my essay that I wrote about it. Uh, a whole lot of support from the people in the industry, our followers, our listeners, things like that. Uh, I have always been very honest since we started this podcast. Podcasting is not my cup of tea. It's not my comfort zone. It's not my wheelhouse. Writing is. So going kind of going through the death in our family, uh, I was not very motivated at all to record podcast whatsoever. So I have it. I kind of dove in. A lot of you have read the first-year player draft list that I recently published on the site. For the past month, uh, I've kind of been, you know, coping at home. Of course, everyone is staying at home, but I've been coping uh, by writing that list and diving into uh, draft prospects, whether it's high schoolers, college uh, prospects, or even the uh, international prospects in this year's first-year player draft class. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better. I'm feeling motivated. We are finally back after, I think it's exactly one month. We'll be publishing this on, uh, May 22nd. I believe the last, uh, episode that we published was April 22nd. So it has been exactly one month, but we are back. We have an awesome episode for you today because we are talking about the MLB draft. My guest today is none other than Mason McRae. You can follow him on Twitter at Mason underscore McRae. That's M-C-R-A-E. He is the first ever MLB draft analyst for Prospects 365. Mason, how's it going, man? How's it going? Pretty good. How's everything your way? All good. All good. You, You live in, you're in Virginia, correct? Correct. Awesome. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to dive into kind of Mason's process behind the war room. And for those of you who have somehow not checked out the war room yet, it is basically Mason's draft board. We're going to kind of get into his mind a little bit behind his rankings, his process as he came up with hundreds upon hundreds of draft prospect rankings. Most of those prospects have an individual report attached to them on his big board in the war room. So we're going to dive into that. If you noticed, if you're listening to this podcast episode, you probably noticed that the title of this episode is Duel of the Fates. That is because we are going to dive deep on something that a lot of people are hoping that we talk about. And that is the Emerson Hancock versus Asalasi debate that is leading up to the MLB draft that takes place June 10th. Uh, Mason is a big proponent of Emerson Hancock. I like Asalasi more. We are going to dive headfirst into that debate today. And then to finish this episode, we had we were asked 10 different questions today from people on Twitter regarding the MLB draft. And we are going to answer 
all 10 of those questions. So let's dive in. Uh, Mason, your draft room, your war room, your draft board is, as far as I know, unless I have, you know, as long as I'm not missing something, it is the most expansive draft board available on the internet. It's especially the most expansive draft board that is publicly available for free. I know I've asked you this before. You said, I believe when I asked you, you said that it had basically taken you almost a year to create this war room, this draft board. So take us kind of behind the scenes of your process. Uh, You know, how long does it take you to evaluate prospects? How long did it take you to kind of put together a a big board that has, uh, what what is it, around 750, 800 total prospects on it? Take it away. So this board, I believe it started on May 30th of last year. I was kind of sick of the 2019 class. I was done with it. There was nothing much to do with it. And I started looking at this class, and I mean, from the get-go, Torkelson's been basically everyone's bread and butter since, what, 2018? We've heard about him after his monster freshman year, and then he followed it up again with 20 home runs, 20-plus home runs as a sophomore again. So this has been exciting, this class, so I really wanted to dive into it for that reason. Not to mention that I got to hear a lot about the USA program this summer, and I mean, some of the guys on that team are already high-ranking guys. Obviously, Veen, ironically, the top prep guy, wasn't on the USA roster this summer. But mainly the high school guys was something I was looking forward to as well. And in regards to the best board available, I do think Pipelines probably is the best. That's my favorite, just how, uh, how organized it is, how they have all the grades lined up, the videos all available. They have the they kind of go over the players in video, so I think that's mine. Some people like fan graphs, but uh, they don't really update it that much. Some of the reports are kind of small, I guess. They've been like I know Drew Romo's hasn't been updated in a while because it's been the same for like eight months. But when it comes to doing my reports, basically when I started this at the beginning of the summer, I kind of started reports for everybody. And then right around October-ish, I did like a second report. I cleaned them up. I kind of organized them again. So right around when the college season started, that was when I started using Synergy to my advantage and taking in the velocities on certain pitches. Trackman numbers came back from Division One Baseball, Baseball America. They started making them public. So I was kind of using that to my advantage. As of now, my draft board, when it comes to trackman numbers, spin numbers, exit velocities, it's kind of lackluster. That's my, in the next coming weeks. Once I finish up the top 800, I'm going to work on basically the top 100 reports and kind of detail those out and make them much larger. If you look already, I mean, like Martins and Torkelson's, Hancock's, those are already really long. Bailey's, Romo's, uh, Dylan Cruz, kind of the guys have already gone in deep at uh, Prospects 365. Those guys already have super long reports. And, I mean, basically most of my reports come from TrackMan. That's kind of my, my favorite place to go. It's got basically every pitch in college baseball since I want to say 2016 or 17. And a lot of the high-end JUCOs are also on it. I mean, McLennan, San Chiquino, 
so many good schools. Uh, Central Arizona, I mean, that's probably the best place when it comes to college baseball. The high schoolers are much tougher, but perfect game with all their player profiles really helps out. They have basically, if you want to go find Zach Veen, you can see video from every single one of his public uh, showcases he's attended, like the the perfect game national. Uh, what else was there? Probably the the East Coast Pro. I don't think he attended that, but East Coast Pro would be on there and such. So those are probably the, the best sources for the war room. That's what I was going to ask. I know – it's obvious that you have had live looks at so many of the prospects that are in the war room. Of course, when you're ranking around 800 prospects, of course, you're not going to get to them all. What is it like evaluating a prospect that you have seen in person versus evaluating a prospect in which you're kind of only going off of video? Take us through that process. So I've in my life I've probably attended like two two hundred fifty plus Division One games. Now those games aren't the highest of level, but in the last two years I've seen some guys. Last year VCU took on UNC, and that was when Michael Bush played. I think he hit a three run jack in that same game though. From this year's class, Aaron Sabato played. UNC kind of did a little funny thing with their analytic department. They would pinch hit Sabato as a DH in I believe the five spot after an at-bat because of VCU, how they pitched. VCU's pitcher only lasted two-thirds, two innings and two-thirds. So they ended up bringing in Sabato, and he ended up having, I believe, three at-bats or four at-bats. He went over three at the walk, I want to say. So Sabato's probably the best player I've seen live in this year's draft. Uh, I live with someone who's called pitches against him, and both of us don't really see – the excitement from him. He's got power. He's got plus power probably. His size, what is he, 6'2", 230, I want to say. He's he's Torkelson, but a little bit more thick. And I don't think the body's a concern whatsoever. I just think he's a well below average defender at first base. Doubtful he could play first base at the MLB level. He's kind of unathletic, moves around stiff. He kind of scares me at the spot. That's why UNC... I feel like they de-edged him most, most of his career there. This year, he did start at first base against VCU. He went one for four with a home run solo shot off a 2-0 fastball from a I – th- I believe it was an 86-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle. So, I don't know. So, a cookie. A cookie, uh, yeah. It so, I, don't, I really don't understand the hype around him. I believe I have him in, what, right outside the top 100 on my board. Yeah, and he, he's an interesting prospect. I, I wrote about it in my kind of my fantasy-focused draft prospect list. He's someone who is going to be on the radar of a lot of Dynasty League players just because of his offensive profile. But in his write-up on my list, I kind of talked about there is such little margin for error when you're talking about first baseman. And, you know, your, your Spencer Torkelson is kind of viewed as someone who can – have a legitimate impact on an organization. He can kind of be a face of an organization. You know, he's probably not going to compete for gold gloves defensively at first base. But then Sabato is kind of even more of a step down the defensive spectrum, even to the point where he's probably going to see, you know, if you hypothetically get him to the big leagues, he is going to probably see most of his playing time at designated hitter which Mm -hmm. means that he is going to have to provide a massive amount of offensive value 
to be a true asset to an MLB team. So it's a, it's a really interesting contrast. And I do want to uh, kind of give some detail to our listeners. Uh, a few minutes ago, you said in your lifetime that you had probably attended around 250 Division I college baseball games. If you were right. listening to this, you need to know that Mason is not yet old enough to drink alcohol. <laughs> so, so to say that he's already attended that many games, and of course he's already discussed the immense resources he has at his disposal to kind of review film, to uh, review the analytics and the data behind exit velocity, spin rates, pitch usage, things like that, that he has in his arsenal that help him make educated choices, decisions when he's ranking said prospects. So with that being said, let's dive into the meat and potatoes of this podcast episode. You know, uh, from before you even joined Prospects 365, you wrote, I believe, what, futurebluejays.com, correct? Correct. And Are you, what, you're going to refer to the Why I'm Low on Ace Lacey uh, article, I believe? Yes, here we go. So you know that one of your hottest takes of this draft class Many hot takes. Yeah, oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> one of your biggest hot takes in a repertoire of a lot of hot takes, I guess we should say, is that Asa Lacey, uh, you have him ranked 22nd in the war room. So you have Correct. him as the 22nd uh, ranked player heading into next month's MLB draft. I don't have that article from futurebluejays.com pulled up. I think, correct me if, if anywhere I'm wrong, you kind of, you discuss his uh, relief risk. You are much lower on the arsenal than I am. You said, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that his big league ceiling, even if he were to make a rotation, is nothing more than a starting pitcher number four, correct? Carlos Rodon is my, my ceiling comp. You have the Carlos Rodon ceiling comp. You said kind of the arm motion of a Michael Walker, and you have one more comp on Lacey as well. This one came from MLB Draft Talk on Twitter. This was probably – when he gave me this comp, I, I loved it. Uh, Robbie Ray, very similar delivery, poor posture with his head, kind of gets out front. It works, the delivery. Obviously, Robbie Ray is a big leaguer, but it, it, was, it was a perfect comp. Yeah, I, li I like that as well, especially from kind of a mechanical standpoint. So – if you are, if you're listening and you are really big into Twitter and you follow along with all the dialogue and the discussions that have been going on in the, in the past weeks and will certainly continue to occur in the coming weeks leading up to June 10th and 11th draft, uh, you know that one of the biggest topics of discussion is kind of the Emerson Hancock versus Asa Lacey debate. And uh, we know that both of these prospects are likely going to be taken inside of the top 10. We kind of we think we have it pinpointed to where Lacey is probably going to be taken third. Hancock could, you know, anywhere from that four to six range, probably. Uh, who knows? But, of course, I'm just going to open the floor up to you because you are kind of the one that is steering this ship, and you're kind of the reason we are having this discussion. You are dead set on Emerson Hancock being the – best pitching prospect in this class. As a matter of fact, I'm in your war room right now. You have Emerson Hancock, Max Meyer, Mick Abel, uh, Reed Detmers, Garrett Crochet, Cole Wilcox, Nick Bitsko, uh, and Carmen, uh, what is it, Mod, Modzinski? How do I your pronounce Your guess is better than mine. I'm awful at this. You have all of those pitchers ranked ahead of Lacey. So 
two things. Number one, I want you to talk about your affinity for Emerson Hancock. And number two, I want you to give your definitive argument as to why Asa Lacey uh, is justified being outside of the top 20 on a draft board. Well, first of all, I think if I, uh, if I didn't have Asa Lacey where I have him, I would kind of be a hypocrite. I mean, how can you have somebody that you think would end up as a big league reliever inside your top 10? Like that would just, that wouldn't make much sense. The reason he is 22nd is because of the fact that, uh, I mean, you can't deny the numbers. His numbers are insane. He pro if you took, if you drafted someone based on numbers, I don't know who, who you take over Ace Lacey. He's only 21. He's got three pitches with really good spin numbers. He probably has the best in-game pitching numbers we've seen in college baseball. Since I, who do you think has better numbers than him? I don't even think uh, Casey Mize had better numbers, and he went first overall in 2018. Right. Yeah, the track record is certainly there. He, he jumped into the SAC. He's had a sub three ERA every single year. He's been at worst in his, as a freshman, he was a long reliever swingman type role. He's been absolutely incredible for the Aggies. Uh, and I mean, but then you look at Hancock, who's kind of different. He wasn't a big prospect at a high school. Lacey was Lacey probably turned down seven figure money. And in, it, because of mechanical issues, teams kind of were worried about him. He had much worse of a head whack as a high schooler, which turned teams off. And he's done a really good job of kind of neutralizing it. He still has – he doesn't have a head whack, that's for sure. He just has kind of poor posture now at this point. And it's kind of contributed to his improving control, which is probably, probably the biggest thing that concerns me, his control. I just – I have a tough time with power arms in college – that uh, get away with middle middle misses, and having to new and fine tune that the next level. I mean, you look at high schoolers. Daniel Espino last year, who had he worked into the the nine, upper nineties. I think he touched triple digits. Someone like him out of high school, teams worry that uh, they won't fine tune their command. They've their entire high school career. They've overpowered hitters with middle middle fastballs, and I, I just. That's probably one of my biggest worries with Lacey is that. I do think his fastball slider is the best combination in the class. And I think the only person I would put in that conversation would be Mayer, who's kind of a similar – his fastball and slider are kind of similar in the sense that they're both power pitches. Obviously, one's a righty, one's a lefty, one's six four, one's six foot, and mechanically they're completely separate but looking at their fastball and sliders they're both kind of from the same standpoint of tight sometimes look like a cutter their sliders do they both are in the upper 80s getting to the 90s I want to say Max Mayer's slider is like 89 to 91 it's absolutely incredible an analytically like inclined off or off not often sorry an analytically inclined organization should probably jump all over Max Mayer, especially if they're going to ignore his height, which I could care less about. I love short pitchers. I think they have much whippier arms. But back into the Hancock versus Lacey thing, why I love Hancock so much and why I have him at third, and I've had him at third for, I want to say, three, four months now. My top four has been pretty stale. 
Hancock, his no, I, I think his spring, I feel like it's prospect fatigue with him. He's been on radars ever since his freshman or sophomore year was so dominant. I want to say he posted like a sub two ERA somewhere right around two. Posted some really good numbers, had amazing command of four pitches, four pitches of which all of them are average or better. Three of them are above average or better. And I have two of them with plus grades and the fastball is a 65 grade. And that's where I think the difference from everybody comes. Some don't like the slider. And I understand I, his, this year's numbers weren't good, as you pointed out on Twitter. But I think when you look at a larger pool of work, he is his numbers are off the charts. And when it comes to being a starter, I don't know who has better mechanics than him from that size and repeats them as well as him. Yeah, so I, I cannot argue with you whatsoever. And I said as much in the list that I published earlier this week. Uh, Hancock's pitchability, Hancock's mechanics, the way that he goes about his craft on the mound. You cannot argue that whatsoever. My side of the argument is that, you know, you made the comment, and of course we've had a dialogue publicly on Twitter. Uh, we've talked in DMs to each other about this, so on and so forth. In 2020 alone, Lacey had three pitches that induced more swings and misses than any of Hancock's pitches. Uh, Lacey's fastball had a 17% swinging strike rate. Lacey's slider had a 46.4 swinging strike rate. Lacey's changeup had a 46.1 swinging strike rate. And yes, that is a four-start sample. Uh, I do think, and by, to compare that, I, if memory serves me correctly, looking at my list, Hancock did not have a single pitch this season in only four starts that had a swinging strike rate of higher than 13%. So that is kind of the basis of my argument. And yes, you know, if you do put the body of work together, that does make Hancock look better. And you throw in the mechanics, you throw in the pitchability, the polish. Hancock, and I said it in my list, is your prototypical college pitcher. He's polished. He is going to, assuming that his stuff is more in, in, intact than it appeared during the short college season, he is going to move quickly through the minor league, someone who could give you impact at the big league level probably sometime in 2022, depending on who drafts him. I just think that there is quite a bit of risk assuming that Hancock's four starts this season were only a blip on the radar. And you look at the you look under the hood of Lacey's uh, arsenal, and you see a vertical movement on his fastball that uh, is, let me, I don't want to lie to you, it is 20, nearly 22 inches, which is elite even for the big league level. And he has fantastic horizontal movement on his slider. I really think his changeup uh, took a step forward this season. Uh, now, of course, Hancock, uh, yes, Hancock does have more command, and I've admitted that publicly. I just think Lacey's arsenal is so explosive that you have more to lose assuming that Hancock's entire collegiate body of work makes him a more valuable and a more highly ranked pitcher than an Asalasi who without a shadow of a doubt had the better numbers in 2020. I, I just think that you know if we're not if we're too careful and we exclude 
the 2020 samples that we were given, that means that a Heston Kerstad is probably not a first rounder. A Dylan Dingler is certainly not a first rounder. And I know that we're kind of comparing apples to oranges because we're talking about two hitters compared to two pitchers, especially two pitchers with an extensive track record. But I, I just think, in my opinion, that Lacey's stuff is just so much better than Hancock's from a raw standpoint that I'm willing to take a hit in the fact that Lacey does not quite have the pitchability of a Hancock. He doesn't quite have the command of a Hancock just because I truly think that Lacey's upside is that of one of the best left-handed starters in all of baseball. I, I said it in my article, the, the mechanics, it's like you said, it's not a head whack. And I was thinking about this earlier today, how, you, how we were going to word it on this podcast, and you said it perfectly. It's not a head whack. It's more of just kind of a posture issue. The fact that most of the time when he releases the baseball, he's looking at the ground. I do think that that will need to be ironed out professionally. I'm hoping that whoever drafts him can do that without kind of the stuff taking a step back. I do think that it is a really interesting argument from a sample standpoint, because if you take Emerson Hancock's entire collegiate body of work, you pair that with the polish, the pitchability, the command, you have a really, really good pitching prospect who is going to make big waves professionally. If you rely more on the 2020 sample that we were given, then Hancock is more, he's an extremely high floor pitching prospect who never kind of gets to that upside that his biggest proponents think that he's going to get to. It is going to be extremely mesmerizing to watch these two pitch professionally after they're drafted next month. Yeah, there's one thing I do actually want to mention, and it's the fact that if you look at them, Hancock and Lacey kind of do – they kind of are two separate sides of the coin. Just the fact that one's present stuff that he's already shown, the other one is kind of projectability – had a down spring, you're kind of hoping he bounces back at the next level. And another thing, one of the positives that has come out of coronavirus is the fact that all of these high-power college arms, teams are getting them, and they're going to have, what, 70, 80 less innings of work on their arms? What is that, 200, 2,000-plus pitches? That's true. That's something I haven't thought about. That's the one positive thing that's come out of this. Is that and, less wear and tear on our college arms that we Yeah, because you, you don't really know. I mean, I can't say with 100% confidence that someone like a Garrett Crochet who missed the start of the season with a shoulder issue, he pitched once before the season was shut down. We can't say with complete confidence one way or another if he would have pitched for the entirety of the season completely healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're right. That is kind of one benefit of the shortened season. So – Anything else before we move on from this duel of the fates, the Emerson Hancock versus an Asa Lacey? Well, the crochet one start he had this year, that was probably one of the best three and one-third inning starts I've ever <laughs> Agreed. <seen>. Agreed. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. There's not much more to say on Hancock Lacey. I do uh, – when I get the chance, I'm want, I want to watch more of Lacey, actually. I've watched way too much Emerson Hancock. I probably will never watch another pitch from him again unless he's a Blue Jay. Hopefully he is a Blue Jay. But I do want to look at Lacey and see more of his curveball. I do think I kind of ignored the curveball. And I, because of his arm slot, I think a steep 12-6 type curveball could really help his, his portfolio. Adding a cutter would be nice too. I don't, I'd still don't think the changeup's going to stay at the next level. But that's been 
some people think it's a plus pitch. I feel like Pipeline had like a 55 grade on it. 46.2% swinging strike rate this season. But you said it, and I really liked it. You said, you know, they're kind of two sides. They're different sides of the coin. In my list, I said, you know, they're kind of the perfect antithesis. Emerson Hancock is kind of your some of the parts type pitching prospect. The only thing about that is, though, a lot of times that has a negative connotation. Most of Hancock's parts are above average. And Ocelacy is more of the pitcher who is going to kind of wow you with his explosion. I remember the first time I was watching Lacey as I was uh, writing my crystal ball projected prospect list for next season. The, the very first thing that jumped off the page in me was Lacey's fastball. And you just, it is bananas good at the top of the zone. And I knew before I got my hands on the Rapsodo data that it had above average vertical movement. And I am a sucker for a pitching prospect who can kind of, the foundation of their arsenal is their fastball. Asa is going to be able to throw that pitch 50% of the time, anywhere from 50 to 60% of the time, professionally, just because it remains on plane for so long. You look at the spin rate, it's not even an elite spin rate. It's the fact that it has 100% spin efficiency and it, it, it is uh, the, the vertical movement would be kind of in the 90 to 100 percentile amongst MLB starting pitchers. So I'm a sucker when someone can lean on their fastball that much. Uh, you know, from a movement standpoint, as far as a traits standpoint, I'm not sure his changeup ever has to have that fantastic fade that we have come to love with so many people like your Chris Paddocks who have an elite changeup just because I think the slider and the fastball are going to play well enough that even if he throws his changeup maybe anywhere from 10 to 15% professionally, I think it's going to have some value just because of how good his other pitches are. Uh, but it's like, it's like we said, it's something that, of course, we're going to continue debating leading up to the draft. And then, of course, uh, it is going to unfold uh, right before our eyes. You said that you think Hancock – uh, or you hope Hancock ends up being a Toronto Blue Jay. To me, he kind of strikes me as a perfect Kansas City Royals prospect, and I'm going to hurt your feelings <laughs> just because I know how much you love Brady Singer. Uh, but, you know, Singer to me is kind of a quintessential high-floor pitching prospect. Sinker, change-up yeah. slider. I think, I think Hancock would fit right in with kind of your Chris Bubik, your Jackson uh, Cower, or how, how do I pronounce that? Kawar? Cower? Cower. Uh, Howard, you, I think you're right more than I was. <laughs> Brady Singer, just that kind of – one of the best crops of pitching prospects in the minor leagues. I kind of see Hancock in that mold. You obviously see uh, more upside. So, with that being said, we have a lot of questions that we were asked today on Twitter from people wanting to have some information leading up to the draft. So, we're not going to give you a five-minute spiel on any of these, but we are going to answer each and every question that we were asked. You know more about this than I do. Uh, first question from at Ray4 underscore MC. Where do you think Veen goes, and what is his signability? This one is tough. I've been digging for Veen news from people for so much, so long now. I re I've come out very blank, and it's unfortunate because – Veen's come up in talks at five with the Blue Jays. He's come up in talks at four with the Royals. And then after that, it's kind of ghost. 
in my last mock, I believe I had him going 12th to, Can- to Cincinnati, which probably was the lowest he's ever been. And I think the one thing is his signability, I have no clue. From what I've heard, it likely is slot value or somewhat below. But that's very – I don't know how to word it. It's, it's not the most confidential thing I've heard. And I, I think Veen could go – this is a really wide range, but anywhere from five to about ten. I, I, I like him going ten to L.A. a little bit because it sounds like Pittsburgh and San Diego could very well go underslot prep outfielders. And I'm not going to say their names because I have a mock track coming out soon. <laughs> Same. Same. Uh, we're going to, of course, we're going to kind of set the stage for the remainder of our content at the end of this episode. But I am currently working on the first ever MLB mock draft I've created. I'm going to be publishing that before Mason publishes his final mock draft. As of right now, just to kind of be more blunt, I have Veen being taken, I guess, what, fifth by Toronto. Uh, I have, like like Mason, I have absolutely no information on his signability. I assume if he's taken anywhere inside of the top ten, I don't think that he is going to make it to school. I think he'll be signable as long as uh, it is at slot value or perhaps slightly below. Next question, at will underscore your underscore way. Does Ocelacy have a chance to be picked second? Go for it, Mason. Of course he does. Because anybody could could go at pick second, anybody could go first overall, anybody can go third overall. I don't think Baltimore is going to go with Lacey. From what it sounds like, they're going to go with Torkelson or Martin. Obviously, that's nothing new that anybody said. It does sound like Detroit legitimately is considering underslotting Lacey at one, which would be an absolute mess. And then that would kind of open up Torkelson or Martin for Baltimore. I think Lacey at three to Miami is an absolute lock. I've put Lacey third to Miami, I feel like, in a million straight mock drafts I've done in my head. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think assuming that the first two picks go the way that they should, uh, with Torque going to Detroit, Austin Martin going to Baltimore, I think Lacey goes third. I will say that there is no organization in baseball, and I'm including the Dodgers, I'm including the – Astros, I'm including the Yankees. There is no organization in baseball who currently prioritizes vertical movement in their fastballs more so than Baltimore. And Ocelacy is in the 100th percentile of pitching prospects in this class when it comes to vertical movement with a fastball. So there is a connection there as far as that goes. But saying that, having said that, I think Austin Martin is going to kind of be the no-brainer second. If it if he's not, then that means the draft has already flown off the rails and you can <laughs> wad up every mock draft you've read the past few months Perfect. and throw it in the trash. Absolutely. All right, next question. And I'm really interested in your answer with this because I have not really heard anything. I wrote him up. I'm really high on him from a fantasy standpoint, but I'd love your take. From uh, at Ligers underscore Pistons, how high up has Zach Deloach's stock risen What's his ceiling in terms of the highest in the draft he could get picked? Go. So Deloach was a summer guy this year. He was he struggled for AM last year, uh, and he had a great summer. As you mentioned in our DMs, he's kind of changed his swing around. He has more of a kind of a toe tap now. He had a fantastic junior year, 
And the Aggies in, as a whole team were amazing this year. They had a youngster, Logan Satori, who came in. He kind of picks them up. And with Deloach, I have him right in the 40s. I see him as kind of a slot guy that some team takes when they – if they take someone over the slot in the first round, I could see. He's kind of all over the place. I've seen him as low as, like, the 60s. I feel like on Pipeline and Fangraphs, they had him that low. And I haven't seen his name brought up whatsoever. But he's kind of a tweener. I don't know if he – I doubt he plays center field whatsoever. I don't even think he played it in the summer or at, at A&M. So, it's like – I think he's a left fielder. He played right field, I believe, at A&M. And I think it's left field or right field at the next level too. Yeah, the, the real-life profile is a little bit more shaky on Deloach. I know that it kind of began to turn for him last summer at the Cape. Uh, and then this spring before the collegiate season was canceled, he absolutely blew up offensively. It's not too often that a prospect simplifies from a leg kick to a toe tap and unlocks just a unthinkable amount of power. But that's exactly what – Deloach did. Statistically, he was one of the very best college prospects in the country before the season got canceled. Uh, So I will be keeping major tabs on where he's selected. Mason, like you said, uh, it's probably a corner profile. Uh, I talked to Ralph Lifshitz, who saw him uh, in the Cape a couple times last summer. He thinks that he can be passable in right field. Uh, I'm a little bit more conservative. I think that uh, he can be an, an asset defensively in left field. Of course, at that position, your offense has to really carry your your value. So it'll be really interesting. I think I am probably higher on Deloach, uh, especially from a fantasy standpoint, than a lot of the other lists that you'll see. I had him ranked 19th on my first-year player draft list. Next question from at Millie Sievers. Of the catching prospects, Bailey, Dingler, Soderstrom, Romo, and Wells, how many go in the first round, and what order are these guys selected? This is probably my favorite question, mainly because I've heard so much of these guys, and mostly all of which have been of the guys after Bailey, ironically. Dingler, Soderstrom, and Romo, all, could, all five of these guys could go in the first round, literally all five of them. Romo – has probably had the least amount of first-round talk because our defensive prep catchers are heavily volatile. They're probably – I don't know how – if you draft a prep catcher in the first round, it's you have to have a lot of faith in that player. You basically have to think they're going to be Austin Hedges. Correct. You, you better pray. And he was a second-rounder too. Yeah, exactly. It's hilarious looking at their history. I just wrote, obviously, an article on Romo talking about him off the field mainly and just how – how much the guys at USA Baseball love him. And I, if you meet him in person, I haven't, unfortunately. But if you meet him in person, I'm sure you love him. Now, the other four guys, Bailey I love. He's fifth on my board. I don't think anybody has him that high. Switch hitting catcher. Had better power numbers than the first overall pick last year, Adley Rushman, at NC State. He could go – I've heard him as late as, like, the 20s, I want to say, and as early as 10th to L.A., Dingler is the most might be the most interesting prospect. He is an athletic catcher, really good arm. Was a center fielder at Ohio State and switched over because their their coach to quote him, he wanted to hit their best nine guys. 
and Dingler was athletic enough to play center field, so they fit him in there. He's come up at eight to San Diego as an underslot, but the guys in Texas love him, and I have a really good feeling if he's on the board at 14 and someone like Heston Kerstad is gone, Dingler could very well be their pick for an underslot. Soderstrom, he's also come up in just as high talks. He At 11 is the earliest he's been mentioned, 12 to Cincinnati. They took Stephenson a couple of years ago. And as late as the 20s to the Rays is where I think his last spot would be. And then finally, Austin Wells, he's an offensive guy. I'm not as high on him. I have him in about the 60s. He's come up in as early as, I want to say, 16 to the Cubs for reasons related to Kyle Schwarber, who everybody knows was a catcher at, I want to say, Oklahoma or Indiana, some red and white school. Yeah, and Indiana. And then, thank you, and then switched to left field, but they kind of held him at catcher for a while, and you, they could very well do the same with Wells. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting that you said that about Dingler, the connection to San Diego, because I heard that yesterday as well. Uh, at the end, in the end, I think they're going to go prep outfielder. Uh, but yeah. that is, that's a really interesting thought that he could be underslotted at eight. And then that would throw a wrench into a lot of the thought processes that we've had as far as kind of mapping out how the first round is going to go. Uh, Patrick Bailey has been one of the toughest people in kind of my mock draft process to slot just because yep. you've heard him connected to so many different teams. Uh, and, you know, Dylan Dingler has kind of become an issue for Bailey. We don't even know if Bailey is going to be the first catcher off the board anymore. Bailey uh, could very well be the third or fourth catcher taken, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Right, and, you know, you, you were the one who brought this to my attention, the fact that at North Carolina State, uh, Patrick Bailey statistically has been much better throughout his collegiate career than Adley Rutschman. Of course, I don't really think you can realistically compare the two, but it is interesting to compare their stats. Bailey has been hugely successful at North Carolina State. So I think Bailey is probably going to go off the board somewhere in uh, the teens. Right now, I have him uh, mocked 15th to Philadelphia. I think it would kind of be poetic. JT Real Muto entering free agency after this season and they draft Patrick Bailey with their first-round pick. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dingler is another person. I don't even know if I have him slotted anywhere in my mock draft as of now just because he's someone we've heard as high as eight to San Diego. They go under slot, and then that would allow them to go over slot in the second or third round. I really also think that Texas is a place to watch. I've also heard him uh, even connected to places like the Washington Nationals, uh, or the Cleveland Indians at 22 and 23. Uh, so there are several different places that we could see him go, uh, but I do think he is going to be somewhere in the first round. Uh, Soderstrom and Wells, I'm going to kind of pair together because out of these three guys, I think the, they have the highest chance. In my opinion, it's almost inevitable. I don't think that either one of these guys are going to catch consistently at the big league level. Now, yep. you, you can make the argument that with the electronic strike zone that is going to be implemented here in a couple of years, that perhaps they catch part-time just to make sure their bats remain in the lineup at the big league level. But I do think Soderstrom and Wells are the two uh, least adequate defensive catchers in this group of five. 
Uh, Soderstrom, right now, I have him mocked to the Giants, the same organization that drafted his dad back in the day. That would be uh, 13th overall. I've also heard him connected to Milwaukee at pick 20. Uh, Austin Wells, you know, kind of to piggyback on what you said, uh, I've had I've heard him attached to the Cubs at 16. I know several teams in the back end of the first round really like him, uh, especially the New York Yankees. Right now I have him slotted at 28 to uh, the Yankees. But he's one of those guys that, you know, he's going to be selected in the first round in all likelihood. And because of that, you probably send him out and let him catch at first. But he's just one of those guys that in, in the long run, I think uh, he is going to have just enough offensive value to profile adequately at a first base or maybe even a left field if you get lucky. Next question uh, from at DrakeMan4. Uh, Drake writes for several different sites in the industry. Could Garrett Mitchell drop out of the top six? This is a good one. Uh, everybody knows kind of about his type 1 diabetes. I feel like in, that's in the know. And the fact that he has some swing issues, if you look at his lower half, he's very congenitive about his lower half. You can see him pre-pitch kind of like trying to stay inside with his leg. And he just opens up. And those two things could really drop him. Seattle's GM has gone on the record, Jerry Depoto, and talked about getting up the middle talent and I, I don't know if anybody's a better defender in center field obviously that that kind of more of a touch and go situation but to answer the question I think Garrett Mitchell will I want to say he drops out of the top 10 there's a good chance of it with all these prep guys getting inserted in the top 10 and with money being such a problem and Mitch, and I think the sixth pick is going to be kind of the turning over of the crop with the top five guys probably going to be gone unless Veen jumps up and then it becomes chaotic. But I don't think Mitchell goes to the top six at all. So I agree with you. I would say Drake's question was, could Garrett Mitchell drop out of the top six? I don't think it's could. I think the fact he is he is going to drop out of the top six. Uh, I, I really like him in Seattle, and if we're believing Jerry DePoto that they are targeting up-the-middle help, that, you know, Garrett Mitchell epitomizes that. He embodies up-the-middle help just because he's going to probably compete for gold gloves in center field if you hypothetically place him at the big league level. Of course, like you said, a lot more question marks offensively. I, I don't really know how big of a deal the type 1 diabetes is. I've heard from a couple of people who actually have it that it's not that big of a deal, that it's just kind of the narrative surrounding Garrett Mitchell. And, of course, I'm not uh, making light of type 1 diabetes at all, but just based on the conversations I've had with people who actually have it, they're not really sure that it's going to affect you know his performance or ability uh, as a professional. Personally, I haven't, I haven't taken any grades off of him for it. I've kind of ignored it. Right. Um, you know, I think if we take Jerry DePoto at his word and they are targeting up the middle help, I think that ends up probably being Nick Gonzalez, uh, who is going to be passable defensively at second base, but he, his offense is going to hinge on his bat and his offense. Uh, I think that there's a chance that Mitchell could fall all the way into the 20s. Uh, you know, I don't really 
I haven't heard much about him anywhere in the teens. I know that uh, Philadelphia is targeting a college hitter, uh, and that could hypothetically be where Mitchell falls, but I haven't heard any connection there. Uh, so it'll be really interesting right now, just uh, kind of a rough draft of my mock. I have him falling all the way to 20th in Milwaukee. Uh, next question from at SpaceX Home Run. How do you feel about Jared Jones? If you haven't already, I would check out Ian Smith's mock draft on him, which was, or not mock draft, sorry, article on him. Uh, he highlighted his athleticism. He really is athletic. If you watch him, he kind of does a bunch of stuff with his lower half to mess with the hitters. And uh, I can't believe I had him as low as I did. Earlier in the summer, I had him, I feel like at like 12th. I was looking back at my, at my, my board in like May, I want to say last May, I feel like I had him in like the top 15 for because of how much run his fastball creates and just how athletic he is. And I love athletic pitchers that move quickly on the mound and their arms are whippy. Where he could go in the draft is tough. I haven't heard his name whatsoever. And I really hope he does get drafted in signs because I would hate to see him end up at Texas. That would just uh, – that'd be really – I would hate that. I love his arm. I think – I have heard – you know, it's not overly believable. I've heard that he could go as high as anywhere in the 20s. I think more realistically, he is going to either be a comp round guy or a second rounder. Uh, I am extremely high on Jared Jones. I am so high on Jared Jones that I have him ranked above Jared Kelly on my fantasy-focused draft list. I, I love the athleticism. He's already posting elite raw spin rates, which is, uh, you know, the ability to spin the baseball is kind of something where you either have it or you don't. You can tinker with it a little bit, but uh, Jared Jones certainly has the ability to spin the ball. I really like uh, the slider as well. I think that is kind of your foundational secondary pitch, but I also – project the changeup to really take nice steps forward. It already has really good fade to it, but he throws it too far. It's almost like a two-seam fastball. His uh, fast, his four-seam fastball was anywhere 96, 97, 98, and he was throwing his changeup about 92 uh, this spring before the season was canceled. I think he needs to take uh, some miles per hour off of that pitch. I think that he will. Uh, there have been some videos posted of him on Twitter since baseball was shut down, he has been going to a complex and going and training, and he's actually added a curveball as a fourth pitch. Uh, so that kind of gives him an out against left-handed hitters if the changeup doesn't develop. At the end of the day, his athleticism, I think, uh, you know, his quick twitch, his whippy arm, I think he's going to have a four-pitch arsenal. To me, he has middle of the uh, rotation potential written all over him, a whole lot to like about Jared Jones. I'm really hopeful that an analytically inclined organization drafts him next month. Next, question. I would love him if he went to the Dodgers. That yes. staff oh, would be fun. Yeah, that's the dream. Like a, a I, Dodgers. I think every player, though. Yeah, a absolutely. A Dodgers, a Tampa Bay Rays, a Baltimore Orioles, something like that to kind of continue to get more analytically out of him to kind of optimize his massive potential. At AWZ Rocks asks, rank your top 10 pitchers. Go for it. I think we're going to go back and forth on this one. Go. Number one for you, Asa Lacey. <laughs> so n number one, I'll go with Hancock. All right, number two, I'll go Asa Lacey. Max Mayer. Uh, I'm going to go Mick Abel fourth. Ooh, okay. 
I'll go with go with Detmers. I'm gonna go great, uh, Garrett Crochet. So we're at what seven right now? Uh, I believe that was six. Yeah, we're at seven. Okay, I'll go with uh, Cole Wilcox. I am going to go with scrolling down my lick a list. Nick Bitsko. So my final my final pick the ninth spot. Final pick. I'm gonna reach a little bit. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm gonna stick with it. I'm gonna go with Milonski. Dang it! I was really hoping you would say Kay Cavalli. I'm going <laughs> Kay Cavalli. I wanted to squeeze Jared Jones in there because he would be my next guy. Uh, but I'm going Kay Cavalli a lot to like. Kind of a ball of clay, but also some really good foundational tools. So that is our uh, kind of our compilation top ten pitchers for this class. Of course, Mason, looking at a real draft port type sense, I'm kind of looking more from the scope of dynasty leagues and fantasy baseball at real gr brown asked after 12 home runs in 58 at bats this spring could nick gonzalez have unlocked something really important that allows him to be much more than people think so i don't want to sound negative in this regards but uh there's not much value i put into gonzalez's numbers this spring yes they were he he was great i'm not going to say he was bad obviously he was great his bat speed is obvious, but uh, with the field he plays at, he's got short dimensions or short uh, short corners, and the field is in Jupiter. It's it's basically Coors Field of NCAA baseball, and if you look at their team's numbers, you can clearly see why. So with Gonzalez, we kind of know what he is after what he did in the Cape Cod. and He's a stud. He can absolutely rake. He's got some of the best bat speed in the class. His size concerns people. I don't think it really worries many people. The defense is his problem. And like the question asked, did he unlock anything? I don't think so. I think that's just a great hitter taking advantage of optimal opportunities for himself. Yeah, and I I wouldn't say that I take offense to the question itself, but to ask, could he be something much more than people think? I mean, he's going to be a top ten pick. And I think that there's really no one who is saying that he can't be one of the best offensive second basemen in all of baseball. Uh, of course, you know, he, with the 2020 season being canceled, he really benefits from the fact that he mashed in the Cape Cod League last summer. Wood bats away from the offensive environment in New Mexico State, and he was probably the best player in the Cape. Uh, so, of course, the offensive upside is absolutely massive. Uh, the question is, the biggest question, as Mason alluded to, is is he going to be adequate enough defensively at second base? Because if you move him from second base and he has to play left field, then that kind of opens up a can of worms as far as just how good he's going to have to be offensively to be a valuable, a valuable real-life big league player. I will add to Mason's very brief uh, scouting report. I have heard nothing but gushing reviews on Gonzalez's makeup. First, he's the type of guy, first one there, last one to leave. People have compared it to Royce Lewis, someone who is a baseball rat. He shows up at the diamond. He always is wanting to get better, wanting to learn stuff like that. So for me, it makes it easier to kind of allow him to reach his upside. Uh, and for me to have more confidence in him. One of my favorite Twitter followers and follows at Padres underscore farm. 
Who will the Padres pick at eight? And who are some surprise names that could fall out of the first round? So I'm going to answer this in two parts. The first question, in all my mock drafts uh, outside of the top five, there's no name that I've put at eight to the Padres more so than Hassel. And uh, it's – it's gonna. I think it's really, really likely to happen. I've heard a lot of talk around his name there as an underslot, which is kind of funny given the Vanderbilt commit. But uh, it's pro- for me, it's either Veen or Hassel, and I'm going to go with Hassel. And now the second question for surprise names, I think you're, you're looking at likely high school guys, obviously, for signability concerns. I wouldn't say Bitsko is a surprise name because everybody knows his signability could drop him out. So to go outside of the box, hmm, I think you could look at Jared Kelly. Uh, I've heard that Kelly could very well go as early as eight and just as likely go in the third round and fall to like a Matt Allen situation and nobody would be shocked. His signability isn't, really out of the picture it's just whether teams are going to want to take somebody like him who is maxed out lacks a curveball control over command and take that in the first round in a class with college pitching for everybody and obviously five rounds you kind of got to hit on your first couple of picks yeah, I, I really like your the Kelly take. Uh, I, I'm guessing my good friend Danny Hacker is going to be listening to this. I'm sure that D- Danny is the world's biggest Jared Kelly fan. So I'm guessing that he just took his laptop or his phone and he just chunked it out his window. Uh, but I, I don't disagree with you. Kelly is going to be one of those prospects that is going to be taken from a more traditional organization. Uh, his, his fastball has more horizontal movement than vertical movement. He is not a fantastic spinner of the baseball. He currently, of course, his changeup is plus or better. No one can really argue against that, but he doesn't really have an adequate breaking ball as of now. You can't really project too much on him physically. I tend to think that uh, he is going to be taken somewhere in the first round, Uh, but it would not surprise me to see him fall just because kind of your more forward-thinking innovative organizations I, I can't really see Kelly being too high on their board but getting back to the question I'm I'm with you I, I think that the Padres are going to take Robert Hassel at eight uh, we already talked about we've both heard that uh, Dylan Dingler could be the play there I will also say this I know that you don't draft for need in the MLB draft uh, but you can draft for ETA And you look at the Padres, who are right on the cusp of being one of the best teams in the National League, and in my opinion, probably one of the best teams in baseball, assuming that their core remains healthy. So it makes sense. It tracks, in my mind, for them to go college pitcher. I know that that is not A.J. Preller's archetype. That's not really his history. But someone like a Max Meyer, who is analytically inclined, you can project him well physically, you can project the arsenal, and to me, he's going to be one of those guys that moves quickly through the minor leagues. At minimum, you know, I I know that it's dangerous to always say that if a starter flakes out, that automatically means he's going to become an above-average reliever. But with Max Meyer, I really see that. Kind of your smaller frame, he could focus more on his fastball and his slider. Uh, and he could be an asset from the bullpen. So Max Meyer to eight tracks in my mind, 
But saying that, I do think that they go prep outfielder. I think they underslot Robert Hassel the third there, and that kind of gives them some flexibility later in the draft to maybe snag another West Coast prep who we were kind of assuming probably heads to school. Maybe they can kind of flip him in the second or third round. That's a really good discussion. Our last question, who is the best fit for the dog? Oh, I, I forgot to answer the second part of that last question. Who do – uh, some surprise names that could fall fall out of the first round. Um, to, for me, it's like you said, we can't really say Nick Bitsko just because everyone is fairly aware of his signability issues. I really don't think that Mick Abel falls out of the first round just because he is so good analytically. I really think that the Red Sox are going to nab one of those two starting pitchers uh, just because they don't have a second-round pick. Uh, Chime Bloom is looking to make a splash – uh, in his first draft with the Red Sox, I think they go prep pitcher, and I think they either go Abel or Bitsko. So a surprise name for me, and someone who I guess I just kind of assumed he would go in the first round, but now I'm hearing not so much, probably a Daniel Carrera for LSU. Um, will come up soon. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I, I think that he fits really well in the last five picks of the first round. And I'm high on him from a fantasy standpoint. He's probably going to be – or there's no question he's a corner outfielder. Probably a left fielder at the big league level, so he's going to have to hit. Uh, I'd really like the polish offensively. But the more people that I talk to, the more sense is that he could make it all the way to the second round as your Yankees and your Dodgers kind of perhaps look to underslot a college pitcher uh, to free up some, some room later. Uh, so that's going to be my pick. I know that's not a flashy pick as far as the surprise goes. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind of like you. A Bitsko, maybe he falls to the comp round and Baltimore goes over slot to make sure that they get him, something like that. But that wouldn't be overly surprising. But I do really think that the Jared Kelly, your pick, would be surprising. And there is a logistical and a logical path in which that happens. Last one from at Roto Surgeon. Who is the best fit? for the Dodgers at pick 29? I think the most common one has been Daniel Cabrera. Like I just said, that his name would come up. Uh, he's kind of makes sense in the recent mold. Last year they took Michael Bush uh, and Cody Hosts. Sorry for saying his name wrong. I'm sure I did. Uh, two college guys at corner spots. And I think Cabrera is probably one of the most undervalued players in the class because he's going to make a, a quick splash in the minor leagues and head to the big leagues. And if he goes to the Dodgers, he's someone I wouldn't want going there because I think he's going to be good no matter where he goes. But he makes the most sense for the Dodgers. But to go outside the box, someone like JT Ginn could be a good fit for them. He was a first-round pick already to the Dodgers, so you already know they love him. The question, obviously, the Tommy John surgery. And where does he stand now with his arm? But I think he's a good fit to 29. Yeah, so some for, for some background, he's absolutely correct. And I, I really like Daniel Cabrera to the Dodgers. Hope that it happens just because I'm a fan of Cabrera's game, especially offensively. Ginn was drafted by the Dodgers coming out of high school. They were unable to sign him, so he went to Mississippi State. He had some arm issues last year, missed some time, and then his arm kind of blew up on him early this season before the season was canceled. He is currently rehabbing from Tommy John. I certainly, I also see a path in which the Dodgers are uh, kind of appetized and looking to hopefully grab him again at 
pick 29. I'm going to go out of the box as well. I would assume this is out of the box. And I'm going to go Nick Swiney from North Carolina State. Uh, I think that he is a very analytically inclined pitcher. Uh, really, really good vertical movement on his fastball. But you can also project him a little bit physically. I think he's someone who can add 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. You might see a fastball, a left-handed fastball that currently sits in the low 90s. You might be able to see him get to a point where he's averaging anywhere from 93 to 95 miles per hour with that pitch. Also a really good changeup and an adequate breaking ball. Uh, I know if the Dodgers prioritize uh, a college pitcher at pick 29, I would assume someone like a Nick Swiney, a Jared Schuster, someone like that is probably going to be fairly high at uh, or on their board. But you take a look at last year, they drafted two college position players in the first round. Like you said, a Daniel Cabrera uh, would make a lot of sense. So, so far, we have gotten into Mason's thought process behind the war room, the way that that was constructed, things like that. We dove headfirst into the ongoing debate between an Emerson Hancock and an Asa Lacey. We took time and we answered all 10 of the questions that we were asked on Twitter today leading up to the recording of this episode. We are going to finish up today with kind of setting the stage for the remainder of our content that we are going to be publishing uh, leading up to and during the MLB draft. I've already said, I really only have, me personally, I only have one more draft-related piece that I'm going to publish before June 10th. I'm taking a stab at my first ever MLB mock draft. If you are working, if you work for an organization or you are one of my contacts, I apologize for blowing you up in the last 48 hours because there is a good chance that you have a text or a call from me on your phone. I'm diving in trying to get as much information as I can on where prospects stand on draft boards, things like that. Um, and then during the draft, as the draft is going on, I know that Prospects Live is going to be having uh, some type of show. I think, I assume I'll be on there. I've heard that Matt Williams uh, is going to also be having a show. So I will be on a couple of different shows the night of the draft on June 10th. But as picks are happening, we are going to be updating kind of a live blog during the draft with uh, Mason's report on every prospect that is taken, my report on every prospect that is taken, and perhaps even Ian Smith's report on every prospect that is taken as well. So you're going to have an abundance of information as each pick comes across the screen on the MLB network. So that is what you can look forward to uh, from me leading up to and during the first round of the draft, Mason. What do you have planned in the coming weeks? Most of my content is going to be in the war room. I have been watching film way too much. My eyes hurt from watching all of this videos, but uh, most of my stuff will be coming from the war room. Uh, the, the, most, the only two pieces I think I'll have left is my next mock draft, which I, I've barely touched as of now. It's just kind of like linking players of teams. I might go over uh, the Austin Martin versus Spencer Torkelson debate which I think has been settled though I still have Martin one and uh like I said most of my what I'm doing is basically war room related I'm trying to finish up my top 800 prospects I have about 550 currently updated within the last month I want to retouch up on the top 100 I'll probably end up uh creating a 
I don't know how many pages, but like my reports on the top 100 prospects, just so I can keep for myself, I'll probably put it on Twitter if anybody really wants it to follow along the draft and kind of keep it next to them. If you did not hear what he just said, an 800 prospect draft board, he's updated over 500 draft reports in the last month, hoping to continue to do that leading up to the draft. Now we talked uh, through DMs, it's probably a couple of weeks ago. Have you had the chance? Where do you stand on your war room for next season? So, uh, yeah, I've, I've really tried to stay away from next year as of now. That sh- my next year's war room should come out hopefully a week or two after the draft. And following that, I should be releasing my very first mock draft for next year. You can say it's early. I say it's a little bit too late. But uh, for next year's war room, I, are, I have about 20 guys in there. Headlined by Jack Letter, I'm very excited to get into the Jack Letter versus Kuma Rocker debate. That's going to be Hancock versus Lacey on steroids, and I'm excited. Yeah, and I, I just want to say before we head, I am immensely proud of what Prospects 365 has done in the past weeks, the past months, with no MLB baseball, no minor league season, the way that we have mobilized kind of our content and really steered it towards – the MLB draft. We've added Mason, who has become immediately just a fantastic asset, someone who is uh, continuing to generate a following on Twitter. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't, you've created your Twitter account here recently, and you're kind of already beginning to build towards a thousand followers, correct? I, I will admit, I, uh, I already had an account before I made this one. I deleted it because I had it when I was like 14 and I don't want some stupid thing I said to like come out, which I think was kind of smart of me, but uh, I did have another account. I think I had like 400 followers on it. Gotcha. So just the way that we have mobilized our content and Mason knows this because we've talked about it. It has been some of our most popular articles ever published in site history have been for the 2020 MLB draft. So I am immensely thankful, grateful, and proud of people like Mason, people like Ian Smith, who has published uh, a few different prospect features. He's also published a mock draft. I think he will have one more mock draft as well. The way that we have kind of spun our content to gear it towards next month's draft, we've really continued to pump out content that is immensely popular uh, and people are really looking forward to reading. So I just I wanted to publish that just because that's where we kind of stand as a site. You know, a lot of people are not publishing content, and I understand that completely, but we continue to do that in a way in which we've never done before. Before the season, we didn't really publish uh, much MLB draft content at all, and it has suddenly become so popular that it has to remain a staple on our site moving forward because we would be idiotic for it not to. So we have run through the process behind Mason's war room. We have debated Emerson Hancock versus Asa Lacey. We have answered all of the questions that we were asked on Twitter today leading up to the recording of this podcast. And we have kind of set the stage for all of our remaining content that will be published before and during next month's MLB draft. He is Mason McRae. You can follow him on Twitter at Mason underscore McRae. That's M-C-R-A-E. Mason, do you have anything to plug before we leave these folks? I got nothing. Hancock to the Blue Jays. Let's go. (laughs) I really appreciate you. uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I assume 
probably shortly after the MLB draft, we'll come back on. We might even get in, and we'll just kind of discuss everything that went down. Uh, but I am Ray Butler. You can follow me and us on Twitter at Prospects365. We will talk to you very, very soon.